The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you grab a hold of them and open them up to Matthew chapter 20? Matthew 20 is where we're going to spend our time. We have been working through the Gospel of Matthew uh, this summer, and we are on Matthew 20, uh, almost done with this summer series. Uh, There are hardback black Bibles under every chair. If you're a guest with us and you don't have a Bible with you, please grab that, open that up to Matthew 20 on page 825. Uh, Yeah, pull up your phone, your tablet, Matthew chapter 20. I want to see the warm glow of God's Word wash across your face, okay? So so grab those. Uh, You're going to want to see this. We are not verse on screen people here at the church, so Matthew 20 is where we're going to be. Uh, As you're meeting me there, some of you may have a story similar to my story, but uh, I didn't become a Christian until late in high school. I was 16 when I became a Christian, wasn't raised in the the church. Uh, And so leading up to my conversion, I really thought that Christianity was kind of crazy. Like it it, it was kind of, it didn't really make a whole lot of sense to me in my high school mind. So I'm in high school at that point. uh, And I thought myself to be a pretty smart person kid at that point. I thought I was pretty smart. I was a good student. Uh, I like to read. I still like to read, but I, even before Jesus saved me, man, I like to read and, and discuss my books with my friends. Like we would go out and we, I don't know if anybody else did this in high school. We would pretend we were deep. Like we did, we did, we, we'd pretend like, so this is what pre, pre Jesus Chris, we would go out and we would talk about novels that we had read and we would smoke cloves, cigarettes, I don't know why we did that. We just did that. And we would like drink pots of chai tea and we'd wear like smoking jackets with elbow patches and just pretend like we were really intellectual. Like that was what me and my friends did. And so when I, when I started hearing about Jesus, when I started hearing about God, uh, I was baffled by how idiotic it all sounded. I was baffled. I was baffled by it. Um, I was baffled by the fact that people really believed the things that Christians believe. It, made, it makes no sense. It makes no sense uh, at a certain level. Uh, imagine if the story of Christianity was translated into our modern day experience. Uh, somebody knocks on your door. They come to your door, they knock on your door, and let's just pretend for a moment that you don't just hunker down at that moment and hope that they go away. Right, hit the floor and get quiet so that they think you're not at home. So, so, so imagine you actually go to the door and you open the door and the first thing out of your mouth is, no, we don't need solar panels, right? That's what you start with. But they said, no, 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 uh, I'm actually here to tell you about God. And imagine you're just like, okay, oh, okay, tell me about God. And the guy at your door says, great, well, the son of God was born uh, in Aurora, to, to, you know, a, a town that nobody really likes, right? Uh, uh, sorry, Bowden. Imagine uh, the, the Son of God was born in Aurora to a 16-year-old virgin girl. And you're like, what? Like, what? what to a virgin? Yeah, to a virgin. And, and he keeps going. And, and yeah, the Son of God, he never went to college, Never traveled outside of Colorado, never wrote a book or you know, anything like that. But, but what he did was when he, when he aged to about 30, he started doing miracles. Okay? He walked across the Chatfield Reservoir. It was really impressive, okay? Uh, he took a Chipotle burrito, fed the entire Broncos stadium with that thing. It was a very, very impressive thing. A friend of his uh, in Boulder died. 
It took him three days to walk there. Uh, they were worried about the body starting to stink, and he was like, don't worry, that's just Boulder. That's just what happens there. Um, <laughs> And then he brought him back to life. Like he called him out of the tomb. But then he was arrested. The son of God was arrested. He was given the death penalty. And then three days later, he came back from the dead. He's God. We follow him. You want to join us? I'm calling today's sermon, Makes No Sense. It's the title. It makes no sense. Some of the things that we believe they go against common sense in many different ways. What we believe goes against our common sense, but our text today addresses this. It addresses the parts that go against our common sense and actually how our common sense might be overcome and we might have a real belief in some things that are, frankly, difficult to believe. So today, we start with Jesus giving his third of four passion predictions in the Gospel of Matthew. Four times in the Gospel of Matthew, he takes his disciples aside and he tells them very clearly, this is what I came to do. This is my plan. This is what I'm here for. And if you think it's strange to us, it's just as, if not more strange to them in their context, the things that he's proposing. But here's what I've got for you, okay? Uh, i just lay it all out there. I've got four points from our text today. Normally, you're like, Pastor, you, you do three points and you preach for like an hour. So what are you, and I'm like, just, you'll be okay. Okay, I've got four points. We will be out of here on time. Four points. And they're the four points that I see in this text of what Jesus came to do and, and how we are supposed to live in response to that and why it's kind of crazy, but, but we can actually believe these things are true. But we've got to move. We don't have time to play around today. So let's get going. You ready? Mark, you're back. Okay, you're with me? Mark 20. Let's begin in verse 17. Let's look at this together. I mean, Mark, Matthew 20. Jeez. <laughs> That wasn't even a joke. And you, you guys are live today. This feels good today. I feel good. This is better than summer church. This is like fall church. Verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. Now, by the way, you always go up to Jerusalem. First of all, because it's literally at a high point in Israel, but you always went up to Jerusalem. It's where the temple was. It's go, you always head up. You always go down away from Jerusalem and up to Jerusalem. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So, what we just read, what we just read, what I just read for you, uh, what's that called? It's, it's the gospel. I mean, I wish you would have had that right off the bat, but because uh, it's like the only thing we talk about. But that's the gospel. That's the gospel message. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the gospel at its most basic. Uh, and, and so he's telling them, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna live. I'm gonna go up to Jerusalem. I'm gonna be betrayed. I will be crucified. I will raise again on the third day. That's the gospel message. And the disciples have no idea what he's talking about. 
They don't get it. They don't understand it. It makes no sense to them because it culminates with the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, being crucified and dying. That's why it doesn't make sense to their little brains. It's it's hard to believe. Actually, the first time Jesus told them this, in his first passion prediction, Peter says to him, oh, no, you aren't. No, 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 you're not going to die. Jesus, this will never happen to you. And you remember what what Jesus calls Peter? He calls him Satan, yeah. Get thee behind me. you You have your mindset on the things of man, not on the things of God. But it's here in this passion prediction, in this gospel proclamation that Jesus makes to his disciples that I'll make my first point that is just kind of baffling. What, what did Jesus come to do? He came to sacrifice. He came to sacrifice. He came to be killed. Uh, when it says in the text that he will be delivered over, he will be delivered over. That has a dual meaning. It has a dual meaning. Yes, we know that Judas Iscariot will betray Jesus and literally hand him over to the authorities. That's one meaning of he will be delivered over. But commentators point out that there is also what's known as a divine passive in this text. So yes, Judas is going to deliver him over, but God is delivering his son over to his destiny. See, Jesus didn't just happen to die. No, uh, this is what he came to do. He came to be killed. He came, he incarnated. Christmas happened so that he would die. He sacrificed his life. And, and listen, that makes no sense. Uh, gods don't sacrifice for us. We sacrifice to gods. That's why, that's why it's backwards. Okay, uh, if you were to read the Jewish Encyclopedia, this is online, the Jewish Encyclopedia, you can look this up online, uh, but speaking of Jesus' last words, there's a whole entry on Jesus Christ in the Jewish Encyclopedia, and in the the entry speaking about the last words of Christ, where, where Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he dies, he gives up his spirit. Okay, in the Jewish Encyclopedia, uh, this is the quote we find, I'll put this up here. This last utterance was in all its implications itself a disproof of the exaggerated claims made for Jesus after his death by his disciples. No Messiah that Jews could recognize could suffer such a death. So this is not just the Jewish perspective, hear me. It's, it's common sense. Okay, messiahs, founders of religions, don't die like this. That's not how it normally works. Founders of successful religions, and I say successful because there's lots of wackadoodles out there who start cults, who end up dying early, and their cult just kind of breaks up. But, but founders of successful major world religions don't, uh, they're, they're not normally killed by their enemies in early defeat. No, founders of successful religions tend to live long lives, they overcome their enemies, and they aren't, in the end, abandoned by their followers. That's how their religions actually gain hold in the world. 
This is why the Jewish leader Gamaliel uh, said this about the early movement of Christians in Acts chapter five. I'll put this up. In Acts 5, 38, it says, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men, these early Christ followers, keep away from them and let them alone. For if this plan or undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So what Gamaliel's saying there is this, this little Christian thing, it should have flamed out. It should have flamed out just like a hundred uh, false messianic claims have flamed out throughout history. Why didn't Jesus go the way of cult leaders? Why didn't this whole thing collapse in on itself like a dying star when he dies at 33 and 12, actually only 11 at that point, guys hunker down in an upper room? Why didn't this thing just blow up? Something happened to the disciples that overcame their common sense. But I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. Let's keep going. Verse 20. So this is right after the passion prediction. Verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. So the sons of Zebedee are James and John. James and John are the sons of Zebedee. They're a part of uh, Jesus' inner circle, the big three of the 12 apostles, Peter, James, and John. So they're part of the big three. They're also known as the sons of thunder. Right, that's a great one. Like they walk in and, it, and like their theme song plays is ah, thunder. Like that's what that, when they walk in, that's what they do. Okay. Verse 21, the sons of thunder, their mom says, uh, she kneeled before him and asked for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. So you've heard of helicopter parents, right? You've heard just like hovering around, just like looking around, making sure, like when, when, when little Billy's skittle starts to melt, they just like swoop down and pick him up and like drop him in a safe place. Like, so you know what helicopter parents are, right? Like that's a thing. Uh, this in the text, this is lawnmower parenting. It's different than helicopter parent. She just goes in there and it's like, she just like clears a path for her boys, okay? Uh, and it's been going on for 2,000 years. It's still happening today. Uh, this is not a sermon on parenting, but I'm just saying, don't do that, okay? Don't do that. Um, but, but talk about a, an, a case example of, of missing the point. Jesus has just told them that his plan is to go and die in Jerusalem. He's just said that. And they think, and most commentators think that the boys put mama up to this because they thought that Jesus might respond better to mama than to her, to them, which is true, okay? Uh, but still not true, all right? Um, but they think to themselves, you know what it's time to do? It's time to make a power play. It's time to make a grab. Hey, Jesus, when you get elected, we'd like the two top places in your cabinet. Mama, go tell them that, yeah. That's what happens here, verse 22. Jesus then answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. So Jesus is like, you don't even know what you're saying. Like you don't even know what you're talking about. And so Jesus asks 
the boys. Notice he doesn't talk to mama anymore. He like turns to them. You think they're just kind of like hunkering back, like wondering. And then he's like, can you drink the cup? He turns to them and he asks them, can you drink my cup? Now the cup is imagery that we find all through the Old Testament that represents God's poured out wrath to judge sinful humanity. That's what the cup is in the entire Old Testament. And it's like the cup, imagine a cup. It's like every time you or I sin, we put a little bit more of wrath in this cup. We like pour a little bit more of God's wrath in this cup and more, a little bit more in the cup. And then on judgment day, that cup is to be poured out on whoever deserves it. That's the idea of the cup of God's wrath. And so when Jesus says in the garden of Gethsemane, when he says, father, let this cup pass from me. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, father, if there's any other way, let the cup of your wrath, of your divine judgment pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. So he submits to the father and he bears the wrath. And it's here that I want to make my second point about what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to suffer. He came to sacrifice and he came to suffer. And again, listen, that makes no sense. It makes no sense. Again, Gods don't suffer. Gods don't suffer. They relieve suffering or they cause suffering, but they themselves do not suffer. But James and John, he says, are you able to drink that cup? And James and John confidently affirm, we're able. We are able to drink the cup and they have no idea what they're saying because they think the cup is Jesus referring to his glory. Remember, they just said, we want to be right and left. And he's like... Can you drink my cup? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we want to be right and left. We can drink your cup. And so they think the cup is Jesus' glory. And hear me, it is his glory, but his glory is going to require an immense amount of suffering. His glory is tied to his suffering. So here's how I want to apply this, okay? If, if you want to be a Jesus follower, you are signing up for suffering, you will suffer without Jesus. Hear me, you will. But if you sign up to be a follower of Jesus, you're signing up for suffering. So, so when I became uh, a Christian, I thought that life was going to get easier, better, um, awesomer because I started following Jesus. And hear me, in a lot of ways, life got better. Life did get awesome, but it certainly did not get easier. Okay, we're living in a day where hostilities towards Christians are on the rise, you know that, don't you? I mean, you've seen this. Like when I got saved, okay, I got saved in 2001. 2001, uh, when I got saved, my friends just thought I was dumb. Seriously, my friends from school, they thought I was done because all of a sudden I believed the Bible. And we've already gone over that. This stuff is hard to believe. But I remember uh, going into uh, my, my junior year of high school saying, okay, now I believe in the Bible, which means that I'll, all of a sudden I believed what the Bible had to say about uh, sex. I believed that. So all of a sudden I believe that sex is for one man and one woman in one marriage. Like that's, that's the biblical sexual ethic. And, and so my friends just thought because I believed that, I was dumb. They thought that's a dumb thing to believe. Like no more porn? 
right? Like, like no more fooling around with girls, no more partying. That's, that's what being a Christian is. They thought that was dumb. But believing that today, you're not dumb. You're dangerous. I mean, trust me, we used to be prudish and old-fashioned in what we believed, and now Christianity poses a threat. It's a danger to their way of life. It's a danger to their mental health. It's a danger to their very identity. And listen, it's probably not going to get any better. It's not going to get any better, and it will probably lead to more hardships for true Bible-believing, professing Christians. But Jesus says this in John 16. He says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So what Jesus is saying there is, hey, there are two things that don't seem to go together, that make very little sense to go together, but they go together perfectly in me, and that's peace and tribulation. We would say those are diametrically opposed, and Jesus would say, no, 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 follow me and suffer. Follow me and give your life. Chuck Swindoll uh, says it this way. This is his quote. He says, when God wants to do an impossible task, he takes an impossible man and breaks him. Listen, in every great and impossible work of God, brokenness is necessary. Suffering is necessary. Tribulation is a part of it. Because I, I, I don't know about you, but, but for me, oftentimes, uh, we don't learn as much in the times of blessing. But our ears seem to be wide open during the time of breaking. Actually, I do know about you. That's true. That's true. To follow Christ is to suffer. We feeling good yet? Remember, I front-loaded with jokes, so just remember you were happy at one point, okay? Verse 23. They said, we're able. And Jesus said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. So, so while James and John will indeed partake in Jesus' glory through suffering, those two guys, they will suffer. They will die, ultimately, for their faith. They will be martyred. So they will partake in that cup. But Jesus makes it clear that their request for like his right hand and left hand, that he doesn't have the authority to grant those, po those positions. He doesn't have that authority. Only God the Father has that authority. So he makes that real clear. I can't, can't promise you those positions, guys. Actually, you should really remember back to the Mount of Transfiguration where you watched me there with Elijah and Moses. They're probably better suited for those positions than you guys, but we don't need to go into that, all right? Verse 24. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. They're like, you sent your mom? Really? 
Really? That, that's, what I, that's how I read that, okay? Verse 25, but Jesus called them to him. So now he's got all 12 of them. He called them to him. Lost my spot. Called them to them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Okay. This is a famous passage, okay? Jesus is asking this question, essentially. If you're interested in being great, if you're interested in authority and power and greatness, and you're not so interested in sacrifice and suffering like the way that I am showing you that I am here for, if so, if you're interested in those things without suffering and sacrifice, if so, you're going to lead like the Gentiles lead. That's what he says. And he's not like just talking Gentiles like non-Jewish people. What he's saying is this. He's asking this question. As you lead people, as you're great and over people, are you doing that like you don't even believe in God? That's what he's saying. Are you leading like you don't even believe in God? And, and what he says is, it shall not be so among you. That's not how we do. That's my loose interpretation of it, okay? Gr greatness in the kingdom is the opposite of greatness in the secular world. Listen, it makes no sense. It makes no sense. So this is my third point. Jesus came to serve. He came to serve. He came to sacrifice. He came to suffer. He came to serve. You're seeing the pattern here? Proud of you. He came to serve. And listen, that's confusing. It's confusing it was to them and it was to us. Here, here, Paul reinforces this in Acts chapter 17. I'll put this up on the screen. This is his speech in Athens, and this is what Paul says. The God who made everything, or made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The, the, listen, the reason why Jesus coming to serve makes no sense is because gods don't serve people. We serve the gods. People serve deities. But Jesus, the incarnate God-man, shows up and he serves. And he says, hey, if you want to be great, if you want power in my, in my kingdom, serve. That's the call. So I don't know uh, if you've taken any like leadership courses or watched any like TED talks on leadership or whatever. But if you do this, if you do any sort of leadership course or TED talk or, you know, YouTube, whatever it is, you'll hear uh, a code word and it's servant leadership. You'll hear this all over the place in, in, in the corporate world and the church world, leadership world, servant leadership. So what Jesus says is, hey, you want to be great? You want to be great in my kingdom? Serve, serve. And so we're like, well, perfect, I'm a servant leader. But it's like, hold on, hold on a second. Servant is a noun. It's a noun. A servant serves someone. That's a noun. And what you just did is you took the word servant and you made it an adjective to your noun, leader. You've taken it out of context. That's not how that word actually works. Jesus didn't tell you to be a leader. 
Jesus doesn't tell you to be a leader. He tells us to be servants. He says, you be a servant. And so hear me on this. If serving is beneath you, then leadership will always be beyond you. Servant leadership is not something we put together. You serve, you serve, uh, and, and, and maybe, maybe God gives you the opportunity to lead, but you never lead with looking for an opportunity to serve. You always start with serving. You're a servant. And gosh, this is why we love, uh, uh, man, honoring these two guys, our, our, our college interns, these guys served us all summer. They did things that, that you don't want to be doing. They, they were serving us. And, and listen, I think these guys have leadership in their future because they were willing to serve us this summer. That's what we, we start with service. And maybe God gives us an opportunity to lead, not the other way around. But listen, that messes with our common sense. Servants don't lead. Leaders boss around servants. Not in the kingdom, apparently. So this messes with our common sense. Jesus came to sacrifice, to suffer, and to serve. And there's one more. Look at verse 28, the last verse today. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, so there it is, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, that verse right there is is like the pinnacle verse of this section. And it's because that verse tells us why Jesus came. We've seen what he came to do. That verse gives us a behind-the-scenes tour of why he came to do it. Jesus came to sacrifice and suffer and serve, but why? Listen, so many people know that Jesus came. So many people know that Jesus died. So many people know that, but when you move from knowing that Jesus died to really embodying and understanding why Jesus died, it will change everything. It will change everything, and it's the only thing, listen, that will overcome your common sense. It's the only thing that will overcome your common sense. The only way you can really change is to understand the why behind the what. It changed everything for these disciples. It changed everything for them, and it will for us as well. So let's answer the question, okay? Why did Jesus die? Why did he come to sacrifice his life? Well, the text says that he gave his life as a ransom for many. And it's on my last point this morning. Jesus came as a substitute. A substitute. The word that the text uses in the English is a ransom. And that's a rich metaphor. A ransom, okay? Uh, At some level, that metaphor can get lost on us because when we think of a ransom, we tend to think of a kidnapping, Right, that's kind of where our minds go. We think of a Liam Neeson movie. Right? Like that's just how it is. Special set of skills to harm people. Like, like that, that, that's where our brains go. But, but a ransom, it is what you pay to kidnappers, and that's part of the idea, but not entirely. Because ransom is from the Greek word lutron, Lutron, okay? And to understand how Jesus is using ransom here, you have to understand how this word was used back then. Remember, we say this about biblical interpretation all the time. It cannot mean for us what it did not mean for them. 
So what did it mean for them? What did ransom mean back then? Well, a ransom in this time uh, came from the idea of ancient warfare. It was a war term. And the ransom was the price paid to bring a prisoner of war out of his captivity and slavery. That's what a ransom was in this context. Now, in ancient warfare, they're not, I mean, don't picture like POW camps. Okay, there, there aren't ethics of prisoner rights or prisoner exchanges happening in the Roman Empire. If men are captured in war, they were killed on the spot if they were too big of a hassle to handle at that moment, or they were conscripted into forced slavery. That's what would happen. It was part of war. And the only way you would ever escape that slavery was if someone would pay an enormous ransom price to buy you out. Problem is that rarely ever happened. It was just the cost of doing warfare. They treated captured prisoners as if they were dead already. No man left behind did not exist in ancient Rome. And that metaphor is crucial for us understanding why Jesus came. That metaphor. See, a ransom is only required if you're a dead man walking. If you're a slave. If there's no hope of release or escape. And Jesus paid the ransom price for us. He, he sacrificed and suffered and served as a substitute for you. And if you don't get that, like deep down in your guts, not just information, but transformatively in your heart, if you don't get that, then this stuff will never make sense. It makes no sense. He was a substitute for you. Here's, here's, um, here's Tim Keller's uh, famous illustration about this. Uh, I, I took my family this summer to Buena Vista for vacation. I took my family to Buena Vista, beautiful. Uh, and my plan when going to Buena Vista was uh, to do some fishing. I was planning on doing some fishing. The Arkansas River's right there. But with all the snowpack that we had this summer, the, the Arkansas was like rolling. I mean, the flow rate was wild down the river and it was rough and it was fast. Like there were uh, reports of people drowning in whitewater rafting accidents like weekly, sometimes multiple a week. So I didn't fish there, okay? But, but now imagine with me that I was walking along the Arkansas with Marcy, my wife. And we're just like walking there. And I said to her, hey, sweetie, you know, I love you. With 16 years of marriage, I love you, sweetie. And I just want you to know how much I love you. So I want to show that. Like, I just want to demonstrate how much I love you right now. And then I just throw myself in the Arkansas and drown. Just died right there. Okay, on the spot. Now, does Marcy in that moment, as I drown in the Arkansas, does she go, oh, how he must love me. Is that her response? Is that a life-changing example of self-sacrificing love? No. No, it's not. Of if you think it is, you're wrong, okay? It's, of course it's not. You'd think I was mentally ill or something, right? That's what your response would have been. It's actually, that idea is appalling or even offensive if you think about it. 
But then imagine that same scenario. Marcy and I are walking down uh, the Arkansas. I'm walking with her when she accidentally trips, slips, and falls into the wild rapids of the Arkansas River. And as she struggles, I dive in, save her, but am swept away in the process. You see, that's different. Same result. I'm dead. She's alive. But very different. To that, we would all say, oh, how he must have loved her. See, until you understand, right here, look at, let's, let's do some eye contact. That's, that's okay. Until you understand that you were dead in the water, that you had no hope, that you were a slave, that you were a prisoner, and you needed to be rescued. Until that happens, and that the ransom that is owed for your life is a life, until you understand that, you will never understand the gospel. That the Son of God came to sacrifice his life as a substitute for you. Until the why is made real for you, this will make no sense. It'll just always make no sense. But when you see it, like when you really begin to grasp what Christ did for you on the cross, it makes all the sense in the world. It changes. Me jumping into that river not to save her makes no sense. But me jumping into the river, like every one of us, to save my wife, to save my daughter, to save even a random person drowning, that makes all the sense in the world to us. See, it all has to do with our perspective on it. And, and once you understand that, it changes everything. And this is where Paul's magnificent words from Romans chapter 5 begin to actually hit home. Look at this on the screen, Romans 5. For while we were still weak... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath, the cup of God? See, other religions, they will tell you that God loves you. Christianity is not unique in that. Other religions will tell you, hey, there is a God and this God loves you. But how, hear me, it's only Christianity that shows it to you. Christianity isn't just a statement of God's love. It's the event of God's love. It's the story of God's love. It's the demonstration of God's love. It's a story that on the surface makes no sense, but it is a story of what Jesus came to do and why he came to do it. God shows us that he really does love us because he gave his life as a ransom for many and that and only that will change everything in your life. So listen, many of you know this. We're in a church. Many of you know this and you need to remember the gospel today. 
The gospel is not just the thing that gets you in the door to faith. It's the thing that sustains you. And you will walk with Jesus differently knowing that he jumped in the icy river to pull you out, giving his life. You will walk differently this week if you remember that. But then my question is that some of you, you, have you ever even surrendered to that? Like Jesus came to give his life as a substitute instead of us. And listen, when that hit me in 2001, gosh, I've just never been able to recover. I've never been able to recover. And every time I hear that story and I see what he did on the cross once again for me, it still wrecks me. It still moves me. It went from making no sense to changing everything about my life. So the question, church, today, have you surrendered to Jesus? Have you surrendered to him? Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, I love it when the text is simple. This isn't great, deep, exegetical work that we did today. This isn't new information, doctrinal things for most today. For some, maybe, but for most, this is like the warm blanket of remembering the things that we know to be true And yet, Father, knowing that you came as a sacrifice to suffer, to serve, and ultimately to be our substitute, Lord, for the believer that should warm our affections to you in ways that would want, make us want to change things in our lives that would make us want to bow the knee, to submit everything, to remember that were it not for your grace, we would be dead in the water. We were dead men standing. And Lord, for some, this is new. Maybe they've been in church. Maybe they know the the facts. They know that you died, but they never really put it all together as to why you died. And Lord, for that, I am grateful that you would be awakening people to this to the true message of the gospel. So Lord, would you stir our hearts? Would you stir up our affections for you? Because because this is the greatest news in the history of the world. That the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give, not to have it taken, but to give his life as the payment, as the ransom, as the life for life exchange for many even us. So God, we love you. Thank you for this text. We pray that it begins to do that good heart work that only the gospel can do for us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.